0: A little, I'll just introduce myself a little bit. I am uh, David dupe Reverend David Dupe. I have been in this church a number of times before, but probably about uh, five years ago, four years ago. I can't remember, but I do remember where the sound thing is and all of that. And I remember telling uh, David that he has to watch out for the volume on this because my volume is already fairly substantial. <laughs> in any event... Um, I served as a naval officer for four years, and I served at church for 13 years as pastor. Went from there as a headmaster of uh, international day and boarding school. Uh, I still teach. I served another church for 13 years after that in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I always used to say that was uh, named after Mark Twain. It was named Fort Twain. But you can chuckle if you like, and if you don't, that's Okay. In any event, um, then I have retired from that church. I am teaching high school. I have taught a number of courses, everything from sciences and math to literature and currently uh, civics and uh, world history. Uh, And I preach whenever the Lord calls me to preach because I am called to be a preacher. Like Paul, I am also called. So that's why I'm here. We're going to read now from uh, the book of Galatians, uh, chapter number one, if you have your Bibles with you, and uh, turn turn to it if you don't use the pulpit Bible, but let me encourage you always to bring your own Bibles, preferably print rather than electronics, so that you can read along and uh, even... It's okay even to uh, make notes in your Bible if you so choose. So uh, open your Bibles, we'll read uh, not not everything. we'll We'll jump a little bit because we're going to have an introductory sermon uh, this morning. a little bit like the uh, church school class was an introductory uh, message on the book of Romans. And I'm so pleased that Nick, in preparing that, deliberately, Prepared for this sermon. I, I say deliberately because he did work deliberately in his preparation, even though he didn't know. Is that in the right, Nick? You didn't know you were preparing for the sermon, but you were. <laughs> okay, we're we're going to begin um, with verse six. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and let me repeat that, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea, that are in Christ, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Almighty Heavenly Father, bless, we pray, this your word, in Christ's name, amen. And I begin, I'm going to begin by admonishing you, by the way, and I hope your elders will continue to admonish you on other Lord's days when I am not here. When the, a prayer is offered, and the one offering the public prayer says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. You are all to say, in loud and cheerful voices, Amen. And add your amen to it. And I don't know if you know what the word amen means. People often say that it means so be it. And that's not quite right. The word is used in Scripture by Jesus a number of times. And when he uses it, the translation, uh, King James, is verily, verily. ESV is truly, truly. It is amen, amen in the Greek. And it means truly. And so the so be it is not all wrong. You're saying, truly, that's my prayer, too, when you say it. Okay, that's quite a bit of little extra stuff. <laughs> let's, let's take a look at Galatians, and I've titled this as the, the Epistle of Christian Liberty. The epistle that hits firmly upon Paul's regular teaching that we are saved by faith, not works. And that even that faith is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So let me suggest to you that there are a number of great questions in our time and every time that everybody has to answer. One of the questions is, did we come to live by chance or by design? If design, who is the designer? If the designer is God, what is he like? Does he care about each of us? Can we know and enjoy him? And of course, you know, the answer is we came to live by design. You are here this morning because God called you to be here. You may think you're here because you chose to come to church. And that's true. And I'm here because I chose to accept the call given to me by Elder Farrell to come and preach on this particular day. But I'm also here because God called me to be here. And that's the fundamental reality. The other is the means used for it. So we are, we have come to live by design. The designer, of course, is God, Yahweh. And I say Yahweh because that is God's name. The Old Testament is mistranslated deliberately. And whenever you see in the Old Testament, the word Lord with capital letters. The L will be bigger, but they'll all be caps in form. The Hebrew says Yahweh. And sometimes it even says the Lord God with God in caps. In that case, it's saying the Lord Yahweh. And that's important because God is not only the Father, is not only our Lord. He is our Lord. He is our caretaker. He is uh, all of the attributes of God, the righteous one, the holy one. If I keep going on that, that will be the sermon this morning. And it could be, and it would be a good sermon. Yahweh encompasses everything that he is. And when we translate it, Lord, we're narrowing it. And so uh, when I read Old Testament, I always read Yahweh. Now, I'm not criticizing those who do not, good Christian pastors and folk, because we all get the the patterns there. But I'm just telling you that to remember that. The designer is God. The designer is Yahweh. And what is Yahweh like? He is holy, perfect in all that he does and all that he determines. He is righteous. He does only what is right. And by the way, related to righteous is he is just. As a God, he cannot ignore sin. That's why we need to be cleansed of sin. One of my favorite verses is First John 1, 9. It reflects the teaching of Leviticus, the gospel of the Old Testament. And it is this: these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins... That's the faithful part. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the just part. Now, the forgiveness of sins, we have something to do about that. We need to work on being holy so that we won't be as sinful and won't need as much forgiveness as we have needed. We still need forgiveness, of course, and only he can forgive. But we need to be working at our sanctification. We need to be working at becoming holy. Now, that's one of the things that is taught in Leviticus. But we also need to be cleansed, and that we can't do. We have to be cleansed, just like a babe has to be cleansed. He can't cleanse himself. The mo- mother or the dad, because it's okay for dads to do these things too, uh, has to cleanse the child. God cleanses us, and that's why he can forgive us That's why he can accept us, because we're clean enough to walk into his presence. He made us so in Christ. Can we know and enjoy him? Yes, we can. Do you all know the first uh, question of the Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. We're going to talk about catechism quite a bit in this sermon, by the way. Um, when you hear those words, when you recite those words, to glorify God, we're to do that by the way we live, by the things we say, by the things we do. And none of us does that perfectly. I stand here a sinner in this pulpit. I don't do that as well as I ought to do it. That's one of the goals, to try and improve. And so we, we, we all should. But then, praise God and to enjoy him forever. Do you enjoy God? Do you take joy from walking with him and being with him and listening to him and studying his word? Because that's part of the the answer there. And it's wonderful. We can know and enjoy God. All these questions, of course, are answered by Scripture in its entirety and far greater fullness than I have just just now. But we can ask ourselves some follow-up questions. How can we know him? We know him in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's why Christ came to earth, so that we could know the Father. What has he done to help us? He sent his son, and he sends his spirit. We are guided by the Spirit. I had one of my uh, former students who came to be a teacher uh, with me when I was headmaster. His name was Aaron. he's still a school headmaster, Christian school himself now. but he came and he said, "Dave, he could call me Dave, but he used to be Mr. DuP when he was a student <laughs> But he said, Dave, the things we're doing, the decisions we make for these kids can be so important for their lives. How do we know if we're doing what is right? And I said, and I'd never thought about this this way. Sometimes you learn through the answers you give, (laughs) answers you didn't even know you knew. I said, Aaron, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you believe he guides you? Yes. Yes. Sometimes that guidance is obvious. You know it was there. Sometimes it isn't. But if you're looking to him for guidance, he will guide you. And the very decisions you make will be those he wants you to make. Even sometimes when they're wrong, if you vote for the wrong person for elder, say, God will use that. The Spirit will guide you. My, my example to my students was a Sunday in my, my student pastorate. Uh, we didn't have an evening service. And uh, one particular Sunday, for some unknown reason, I wanted to go to an evening service. And the only church in town with an evening service was the white Methodist church in that town. There was a white Methodist and a black Methodist. The white Methodist church and the pastor was very liberal and not preaching the gospel. But I thought, well, I can still hear Scripture. I can still sing the hymns. I can sit there and worship, even if he isn't preaching the Word. And I did get up, and I went a little bit late, so they were all already in church. And I walked in the back of the church, and there was a man in the front leading singing. And I thought, oh, praise the Lord. They're all standing singing. I can slip into a back pew. No one will know I'm here. And as I stepped in the door, he stopped. And he said, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Brother Dupuy, come on down. Our pastor is sick tonight, and we've been praising the Lord and praying that he would send his messenger. What do you do then? You don't have your sermon notes. I preached the sermon from the morning. I don't know how complete it was. But you certainly can't say, well, you know, I'm a pastor in town, but I'm not God's messenger. Was the Spirit leading? Why else? Why else? He leads. So look to that. Look to that. What has he done to help us? He sent his Son and the Spirit. What must we do? We must accept his grace by faith, but even that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Must we do more? Yes, we must do more. We need to do nothing to earn our salvation. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. But we need to seek sanctification to work together with our Creator to improve our lives. Now, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul is pouring out his heart to make clear that our salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. And to assure us, this is the doctrine of assurance of salvation, or the perseverance of the saints. To assure us that we are free from any need to prove ourselves, to earn our salvation. We don't have to prove that we're good enough for God. We know we aren't. But he's made us clean. He has cleansed us. If you go back and read Leviticus, by the way, watch in all those sacrifices that get so tiring to us to read, but they're so important, again and again, they're to make us clean, to make us clean. Okay, as we look at this, uh, and by the way, I did ask uh, one of the elders whether how tender you were on the time that the church service ends. And uh, you can blame him that he said not too tender. So we'll see how this, you might. You, I'm sure you'll get home for dinner by 5.30 at least. <laughs> These three things we're going to look at. One of them very short, the other two a little longer. Introductory matters to the book of Galatians, and I commend it to you for your reading. The shape of the book of Galatians, that will be brief, and then I'll look at a few passages. First, introductory matters. Who wrote the letter to Galatians? Saul of Tarsus, who became known as Paul, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew of the Jews. So he tells us he was a scribe. Now, a scribe is often understood as what is called an amanuensis. That is somebody who sits by the roadside. And if you're not literate, but you want a letter sent, you ask this fellow to write the letter. You tell him what to write. That is not what a scriptural scribe is. The scriptural scribes were the experts in the law of God who had studied the Word. And Paul had studied under Gamaliel, who is still remembered by Jewish folk, non Christian Jewish folk, as a leading rabbi in the history of the faith. He was very well educated in Scripture. And he preached, of course, for, you, know, you know that all the New Testament is preaching from the Old Testament. He was a fanatic persecutor of those who followed the way. They weren't called Christians yet, not till Antioch. But they were called the followers of the way. Very zealous. Very zealous. And then he was a man converted to while on his way to kill and imprison the people were in, in Damascus, on the road to Damascus. This is one of the things that Nick pointed out this morning in the church school. By the way, if you don't come to church school, you ought to. <laughs> that's, that's a little admonishment right there. And uh, Nick is doing a, an excellent job. Don't get too big ahead. He was also, and this is so significant, he says, a man set apart before I was born. He was zealously persecuting the church, but he was a man set apart before he was born to preach the gospel. Think of that. That's incredible. I am a man set apart before I was born to ultimately become a preacher and a teacher. You are individuals set apart before you were born for the purposes which God has for you. For the scripture says that he has prepared good works beforehand for you to do. That's to all of us. Not all the same call, but all called. Not all set apart for the same exact thing, but all set apart. Okay. Called by his grace. It is his grace that calls us. I had a very weird conversion experience. I was in eighth grade in a youth group meeting in a church where I never heard the gospel. I think the pastor actually did believe it, but he just somehow never came across. At least I didn't hear it. But we were singing, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. And I found myself saying inside, Lord, that's what I want. And my life changed. From that day, I went from being very foul-mouthed to not being as foul-mouthed and gradually trying to change that. And I didn't just decide, well, now I'm going to change. He changed me. That's what the Spirit does. It's A long time before I understood what the gospel was all about, but he was working in my life. When you come to Christ and ask Christ to come into your heart, whether you understand or not, how much you understand or not, the Spirit is going to work in your heart. He was an apostle. I think he was the 12th apostle. I think when they chose Matthias, they were doing what seemed right and reasonable to them. But I think Paul was the one God chose. If you want to disagree with me on, on that, you're welcome to do that. He was a man who persevered through illness and through a, quote, thorn in his flesh. And I think that was his sight problems, but no one actually knows for sure. When did he write this letter? A lot of debate about that, but there's no question it was somewhere between 49 and 59 A.D., That means that it was within 16 to 26 years of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. These fellows who were writing the New Testament scriptures knew what they were writing about. They were eyewitnesses. They knew. To whom did he write? He wrote to the people of Galatia. It's not clear who those were necessarily, but they were either a province, a Roman province called uh, Galatia, which covered a large area, including the cities of Antioch, uh, Lystra, and Derby, which uh, Acts tells us Paul went to, or the portion of that, which was called northern Galatia. Uh, could have been either one. But either way, they were a very unusual group because they were made up of all kinds of different people there were celtic people coming from the west you know the celts we think of think of them by the way if you're in boston it's the boston celtics but if you're in in um, northern europe it's the celtics at any rate the celts were up from northern europe but they had come across and conquered much of modern turkey which we call asia minor now cuz the romans called it asia that's how asia got to be called asia At any rate, the Celts were there. There were Gauls from France and Spain and and northern Italy who would come across. There were uh, Phrygians and Romans. There were Jews. All these mix of people. It was an interesting mix. And many of them from all those groups that God was calling to faith in Jesus Christ. All those groups. Why did he write this particular letter? Well, I can't tell you for sure, but I, I, as a pastor, I think I know. I know he had preached these people, and I know he loved them as a pastor. And that's one of the things you do as a pastor. It's one of the things you do as a high school teacher. If you don't love your students, you're not the teacher they need. You love your people. He loved them. He had seen hearts changed as the Spirit moved through that group when he preached to them. Now some from Jerusalem were confusing them. They weren't the false teachers that you read about in some of the letters. They were real Christians, most of them at least. Maybe some of them weren't. I can't say. But they had grown up as Jews. And when they became Christians, when the Jews became Christians in Jerusalem, They didn't necessarily stop going to synagogue or stop some of the things that they'd been doing. There was no reason they would have to. Paul, when he went abroad, always went first to the synagogue. So it wasn't that they threw everything over at once. They had to learn what was needed and what was not needed. And so they came and they were confusing the gospel with error. Some of them spoke against Paul, that he was not an apostle. And that was natural again. Because he wasn't one of the original twelve, and that's true. Salvation, they still thought, was partly earned by works. Now, the apostles knew better, but not all the Jews that came from Jerusalem did. And even the apostles waffled on that a little bit. You can see that in the book of Acts. But Paul was concerned about that. Now, this all happened centuries ago, so why should we care? Well, the Roman church today explicitly or implicitly indicates that works are required. They do teach that you do the works by grace. That it's by grace that you're allowed to do them. So... We can, you know, they can argue about that. The Arminian churches, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, teach that you can lose your salvation because it's partly dependent on how you live. And that's not true. That speaks against assurance of salvation, against perseverance of the saints. So, we should care about it. Assurance of salvation. The reality is Satan sends doubts into all men's hearts and minds. If works are required, are mine good enough? Well, no. Not if they're required. I see my failures. Did the Holy Spirit really enter my heart? Does he really guide my life? The answer is yes. He really did. And he really does. If you ever have doubts, and I've had doubts enter my life, and I believe most Christians have had doubts enter their lives, I suggest that you look at history, and the history I would suggest you look at is your personal history. One of the reasons I told about my conversion and my change is that when I've had doubts, I've looked back and realized that without my intent or my choice to do it, my life changed. That's part of my history. And any time you have doubts, look back, you will see places Where God clearly changed your life. Where God clearly led in your life. And that's one of the best answers you have to any doubts that come into your life. Now I want you to take out the uh, insert in your bulletin. It is from the Shorter Catechism, questions 33, 34, 35, and 36. They're among those that I always use with whatever classes I'm teaching uh, in the Christian school where I teach. Because they summarize an awful lot of the gospel. But I want you to notice them because they relate to Galatians directly. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. Wherein he pardons all our sins, accepts us, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Something is imputed where someone looks upon you as though you have done it. I could I could look out and say, uh, last week, uh, one of the gas stations in Krasnore was robbed. And it was imputed to Kathleen Watson, that she walked in with a gun and robbed them. Now, you would know, knowing her, that that was not a true imputation. But somebody might look at her as though that were so. That's not happening, of course. But I've learned a few names, so I pick on the names I've learned. I might pick on you, Jane. At any rate. That's imputation. God looks at us and imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Christ's righteousness is no more true of me as an individual person than than robbing the the store or bank or whatever I mentioned. (laughs) Except it is true because God made it true. It's not true because I'm that righteous. But God made it true. Assurance of salvation. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number. I have two adoptive children. They are as much my children. And their children, I'm about to be a, a grandfather, a great-grandfather. Uh, one of my grandchildren's grandsons is going to have, well, his wife is going to have a baby. <laughs> but it's his baby, too. But they are as much my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren as if they had been born of my wife, as three of my children were. We are of God's family. He took us in. He adopted us. We had to be adopted because we were part of Satan's family. And we have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. That word is pregnant with possibilities, just waiting to be born out of it. All the privileges of the sons of God. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. What? This just changed. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Notice that difference is deliberate and intentional. The first two, justification and adoption, are something God did. It's done. It's finished. You have nothing to do with it except that it was done for you. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's continuing. It's going on. It's ongoing. And we do have a part in it. That's what the scripture means when it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean earn, because otherwise it would be contrary to other scriptures. But it means work on your sanctification, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And we don't have time to cover this, but uh, on that little inset, Write down Ephesians chapter 4 and, and uh, Colossians chapter 3. Because the first mention, the first mention of the image of God is in Genesis 1 that let us make man after our own image. But then the question is, what in the world does it mean to be made after God's image? And if you turn to Ephesians and, and uh, Colossians, You'll find it talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self and gives quite a long description of the sins of the old self and the righteousness of the new self. Okay? And that's as much as I have time to say this morning. But it's important. Renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die under sin and live under righteousness. What are the benefits which in this life, the next question, 37, is in the life to come, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. By the way, if you ever go to memorize the Shorter Catechism, the first part of your answer is always straight from the question. That helps. Assurance of God's love. Assurance of salvation. When you have your doubts and you look at your history. Assurance of God's love. Peace of conscience. I'm not good enough for God. But I don't have to spend all my time worrying about that. I don't have to stay up at night and fail to fall asleep because of my sins. Peace of conscience. Joy in the Holy Ghost. Because I have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. If, if you so be that you be in Christ, and I assume you all are. And if you aren't, call him into your heart because he's just waiting. Joy in the Holy Ghost. Increase of grace. There are several passages in the Scripture that talk about grace upon grace. I love those. Because that's what God gives us. The first grace... You know the most important grace is the grace of salvation in Christ. but he gave me a wife for fifty three years. That was grace. I didn't deserve her. she didn't she thought she didn't deserve me, but she well, I don't know if she deserved me. maybe she maybe she was too good to deserve me. but at any rate, that was grace. I'm standing in this pulpit now speaking God's word to you, speaking of God's word to you. That's grace. That's a gift to be allowed to do such a thing. Who am I to stand here? Nobody except for God's call. Who was Paul? Nobody except for God's call. You know, we look up to Paul. Don't look up to Paul. Look up to God. He was nobody. I mean, he was somebody, but he was nobody. You understand what I'm saying? Grace upon grace. And perseverance therein to the end. There's assurance again. Okay, very quickly here. The shape of Galatians. Uh, The single theme of the doctrine of grace permeates. is like yeast into the dough all through this book. And the book is in three sections of two chapters each. The first two chapters are Paul's personal narrative. You've already experienced some of that. Talking about himself and how God called him. The second two, three, and four are the doctrine of grace, central part of the book. And the last two are pleading with believers to live and be assured by faith alone. Looking at some of the passages uh, quickly as we can. In chapter 1, Paul talks about the gospel he preached and which he preaches, the fact that it is from God. On the surface, this is in defense of himself and his ministry. And at heart, it defends the authenticity, the truthfulness of the gospel itself. Chapter 2, Authentication of the Gospel. Paul was given the right hand of fellowship uh, by by Peter, who is called Cephas here. And you know that's another name for Peter. If you don't, now you do. And by James, the brother of Jesus, and by John. In verses 15 to 21, Paul gives his personal testimony that, quote, A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal comparison of gospel and law. The great writers, Calvin, Luther, all wrote about gospel and law. Verse 2 in chapter 3, the Holy Spirit received by faith, not works. Verse 3, the Spirit perfects, sanctifies. My sanctification, which is a, a work of God's free grace, is carried out by the Holy Spirit as I work hand in hand with him. I do have a part in that. Verses 8 and 11, the righteous shall live by faith, coming from Habakkuk, chapter 2, and also Romans, chapter uh, 1, and Hebrews, chapter 10. All of those deal with that, that the righteous shall live by faith. Chapter 4 speaks of adoption. All of those who are in Christ are sons. And yes, sons is generic. Uh, Ladies, you are sons of God. (laughs) and daughters of God, and put it either way, it doesn't matter. You are his children. You are his children. Freedom and no longer bondage. The promise, he tells us in verses 15 to 29, is sure because it predates the law. The promise was given first. Go back and read about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant that he would be the father of many nations, and that he would be blessed and a blessing. And that blessing has come to us in Christ. Chapters 5 and 6, the nature of true liberty, more more discussion of the gospel of grace, Uh, freedom, faith working through love, that's our foundation for life. Your faith working through God's love in you and your love for him. And chapter 5, he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. I, I just told you of my earlier of, of my conversion and the change in my life. That was a fruit of the Spirit. Many fruits of the Spirit. Chapter 6, we're told to do these things because we do have a part in in working out our salvation in the sense of our sanctification and following through on what God has begun in us. Chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. We're going to have communion this morning. With whom do you have communion? Well, with Christ our Lord, of course. But we have communion with each other. Communion is only honored when two or three are gathered together, when there is a congregation. It might be a pastor and an elder going to a shut-in who could not otherwise receive communion. Some pastors think that that's wrong because it should be within the congregational milieu. But that's, that's what needs to be. But communion is us together before Christ. And it's okay if during communion you think about praying for one another. And that's, that's okay. Because you're praying to God in Christ. And your communion is with Christ and with the whole body of Christ. And we are the body of Christ. Verse 10, use every opportunity to do good. You've got to be watching for them. What are the good works God has prepared beforehand for you? And verse 15, you are a new creation, and that counts above everything. Above everything. So remember at least these things. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Watch for opportunities to do good works. Might be sending a birthday card or a get well card. All kinds of things. Welcome the opportunities which God sends. He is sending you opportunities to do good. And do the good works God has prepared for you. Let faith rule your life. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, you have given us so much indeed, grace upon grace, and we're honored and we're awed. Help us, Father, to take all that you have given to walk in the assurance of your love, to seek your will, and to do it as those who are of the family of our Lord, your family. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.